Hello, and welcome to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Let's unpack the relationships that we encounter in our daily lives and learn about what makes them tick. And now your host for Red Rock Relationships, Dr. James B. Stein. That's me, and that's the show, and we are hurtling toward the end of the semester, and it's in some ways scary and in other ways very jubilant. Uh... So it's a mix of good and bad, um, and I bring that up because today we are going to be talking about some of that good and bad. Specifically, we're going to spend some time talking about happiness, which is sort of continuing our um, occasional dabbling in the whole self-love realm. And so to join me for this is Dr. Jessica Kamrath, who of course is an ASU alum. Jessica, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime, anytime. Uh, I think now, other than, I think it's really just uh, Sophia, Carlos, and Sarah, who have not been on the show, of the people who graduated uh, with our cohort. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to check all the boxes. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, thank you for joining us here for a discussion on happiness. I think that this is a very understudied topics, certainly in the field of communication. And so, you know, that you teach classes on happiness and that you make it a part of your uh, professional life is something that I would argue we need a little bit more of. And so I'm really hoping that you can help us unpack some of the stigmas or assumptions that we make about happiness. But before we do that, we should probably figure out what it is that we're talking about. So (laughs) my first question to you is just that like what does it even mean to be happy and is that definition something that we can apply universally or is it like more of like a a case-by-case person-specific sort of thing yeah I think that's a great question and the thing is is this is the perfect question because we need to start defining happiness for ourselves happiness is really something that's created intentionally through language and action. Of course, you're going to hear that from me um, being the communication scholar that I am. Mm -hmm. But if we can really define it for ourselves, then we can move to intentionally creating it in our own lives. So happiness, I think, in related concepts are really constructed in language and through human behaviors. Mm -hmm. And if language creates action, the way that we think about, define, perceive things and talk about things really kind of directly correlates with those actions. So here's the thing. A lot of us really kind of uh, subscribe to these dominant narratives or definitions about happiness and success and what our relationship should look like even. And the reality is, is those definitions in many ways can constrain our awareness and our ability to actually create flourishing in our own lives. So if we can define it for ourselves and what it means to us specifically, but also if we can become aware of the definitions that are constraining us, then I think that that's where we can create it for ourselves. So it's definitely person-specific And I don't think it just means one thing. It's not something that's just this universal definition that's out there to be found. And I think the problem is, is we are trying to come up with this universal definition. And then that constrains us from actually being able to create happiness in our own lives. 
Interesting. Interesting. So I, I agree definitely that it's person specific. Like for me, when I think about happiness, I picture a dog laying on its back in the sun, <laughs> belly up, you know, head empty, jowls dangling. That's my idea of what happiness is. And I know for, you know, a lot of folks, especially in this hustle and bustle world, a lot of people equate things like, like you said, success or monetary, like, you know, net worth, they equate that with happiness. And I, I think you make a really good point in terms of, um, doing the work required to dismantle, uh, the idea of what happiness ought to be defined as, and, and really like taking some time to think about what makes us happy. Uh, I think that that's a really good, uh, point. So we've got it at the individual level. I, I'm happy with that definition. How are you feeling? Me? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I And just to add on to that too, again, mm -hmm. not only defining it for ourselves, but think about the ways in which it's been defined for you that's actually really destructive. I mean, mm. we think about, you know, happiness is really described in our society as this thing that's like out there to be found and it's tangible. And once we find it, we're going to just put it in our pocket and then we're just going to automatically be happy. Mm -hmm. And it's like when we can't attain that, we feel like, oh my gosh, there must be something wrong with me. Or this is how happiness has been defined, but that's not what my life looks like. So I must not be happy. And so, again, if we can really figure out what are some of the ways that it's being defined for us that are constraining us, I think that's where we can um, start to be able to intentionally create it for ourselves. So and I love the puppy example because I agree with that. That makes <laughs> me happy empty. as well. Head empty. And I think, no, and I think you make a really good point. And I think it speaks to the fluidity of happiness and the extent to which that you can define happiness one way at one point in your life and a different way at a different point in your life. That said. Uh, this wouldn't be triple R if we didn't get into relationships and the, the association that happiness shares with those relationships. And so I kind of have a two-part question for you here. Um, as it pertains to close relationships, you can really think about any relationship, but I, you know, I, I'm drawn to the romantic or, you know, sexual relationship. My question is one, what are the benefits of being vulnerable enough to allow someone to make us happy, to allow another person to help make us happy. And then hand in glove with that question is what are the risks of then relying on somebody to make us happy? Okay. Well, I'm glad you asked this question. And I think there's actually a couple different parts to this question in speaking about the vulnerability aspect and its connection with happiness, but also, you know, can somebody else make us happy? And I think first, is while vulnerability and kind of experiencing this full range of emotion is really connected to happiness and well-being. Um, what the research shows is that finding happiness in external spaces, including from other people, is really not sustainable. So mm. we kind of have, uh, you know, this this these studies that we've got scholars like uh, Susan David or Brene Brown um, talking about things like emotional agility and how we have these destructive um, kind of values in our culture where like emotions are right or they're wrong and how we display emotions are right or wrong. And Brene Brown talks about, you know, I'm sure many people have heard of Brene Brown, but she talks about how we cannot selectively numb emotions out of fear of being vulnerable. So both 
talk about emotions as generating this pathway to action to bringing you towards your values and goals and kind of like this idea of deeply being seen. And I think, you know, in relationships, we, you know, based on our past experiences and what we know makes us happy in relationships, a lot of times we aren't vulnerable with our partners. And I think that that can be very destructive, not only in romantic relationships, but of course, with any relationship that we're in. So being able to experience emotions kind of in this full range of emotions, and this is really conflicting again with these societal and cultural discourses of like good emotions and bad emotions and the right way to experience emotions. Mm if we could be vulnerable with other people, there's a lot of research that actually shows that this does create happiness and well-being. But um, if we look at things like contentment and other ways that people have defined happiness, um, that you know, contentment being this kind of unconditional wholeness um, where we're not looking to outward sources to get happiness, that rather it's coming from within mm-hmm. and you kind of direct your attention inward to find happiness. I know there's a really great article from uh, Daniel Cordaro who uh, talks a little bit more about contentment. And I love that um, kind of definition of looking inward for happiness. And so the answer being that, you know, I think we can make other people happy and that's a good thing but we shouldn't look to others to find our happiness and we shouldn't base our own happiness on whether or not we can make somebody else happy. And again, moving to that vulnerability piece though, is we should be vulnerable in relationships. And it really does show for us to be deeply seen and vulnerable that that connects really connects to us being able to create happiness in our own life. I think about um, the extent to which people and I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just jaded because of, uh, the ways in which my social media feeds me specific stuff that's designed for me. I see a lot of mostly young men, um, insistent upon the idea that happiness does not occur without successful relational escapades, whatever that looks like to that. individual. do you know what I'm saying? Like that, this is kind of what I'm getting at with this whole vulnerability thing where there's this duality that some folks experience where they want another person because they idolize the idea of another person bringing them the happiness that they, that they're looking for yet simultaneously having the inability to broach the, the vulnerability necessary to engage in meaningful relationship and also at the same time sort of sacrificing their own self-happiness with the idea and replacing it with the idea that another person can and will make me happy and that if i meet somebody and they don't make me happy that that wasn't the person i I know that that's a little bit of a tangent but that's like what you're saying makes me think of that specific type of person. So what do we do about that mentality? Well, I mean, here's the thing, like it's, it's, it's the students that come to my class, you know, it's, oh, I'm going to take communication and the art of happiness. This class should be easy. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing is, is it's, it's a lot of work. 
And the course is really taught from this kind of transformative approach where I, I challenge students taking for granted assumptions and worldviews about happiness and about success. And the thing is, is people think like, well, you know, that's not really going to be anything that's going to be disruptive to me, or I'm not going to have any cognitive dissonance over thinking about the ways that I define happiness and relationships. But it, it does cause cognitive dissonance because it's these longstanding beliefs um, these longstanding values that we have about what relationships should look like. And then now we have social media playing into what relationships should look like. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're feeding into all of this and thinking like, oh, again, if my relationship doesn't look this certain way, it must be wrong or it's not right. Or like you said, this person isn't right for me. And so I think, again, we have to be open to questioning why it is that we believe what we believe about happiness, about relationships. Um, We have to be open to questioning taken for granted assumptions, worldviews, and beliefs. And that's a difficult space to be in. Um, But if we can do that, then we can become aware of the things around us and be critical about the things around us that are constraining us. Mm. So one of those being social media and the ways in which relationships are portrayed on social media or, you know, an article that's these five things will make you have a happy relationship. And it's like, oh, I don't have those five things. Why is it? Why don't I have those five things? My relationship's not happy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because everybody's relationship is different and those five things aren't going to work necessarily for you. We can't have somebody else define what that looks like for us. And so I know that answer is not the pretty sexy answer that we're going to get from popular psychology, but that's really the the vulnerable space that we need to move into um, to allow us to then create our own relationship, create our own definition of what our relationship should look like. Yeah. And I think at uh- I'm, I, I think I see this as a great point of transition right here because what I'm hearing from you is that one of the things necessary in order really to even approach the idea of happiness is to shed what we've previously been taught about how we ought to be happy or how another person or a relationship ought to make us feel. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that society has sort of been forced into doing that in the past year and a half with the onset of the pandemic. People have been forced to spend a lot of alone time or a lot of time at home with their significant other. And, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, as, as people are emerging from that out of their social hibernation, they're doing so with a new sense of self and a new approach to life. We're seeing an uncountable amount of uh, ripple effects coming from this pandemic. So from a happiness standpoint, what do we feel like happiness can look like now in this like post slash mid pandemic environment? Yeah, I, I, so, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this and a lot of people have actually been asking me about this. Um, So first of all, I think the biggest mistake is really this kind of just rush to uh, going back to normal and not 
acknowledging this kind of collective trauma that we've all been through because we want so badly to go back to normal. I've been working with a group of graduate students this semester who are in my happiness class and trying to kind of figure out what is this kind of we can't describe this emotion that we're feeling where it's like, okay, we're back on campus, we're face to face, something's kind of missing. um, And we're trying so hard to kind of rush back to this normal, where we're not acknowledging again, some of the emotions and some of the trauma that we've gone through. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, we lost Eric's mom to COVID. And then shortly after that, we lost his grandma, not from COVID, but, um, you know, we, we were having a baby and we were out in California. We had just moved, you know, to California recently. Mm -hmm. There were all these outside circumstances that were playing a role in, you know, how we could create happiness during the time of the pandemic. And now that we're moving in a different kind of, like you said, it's this post mid pandemic phase, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we need to, I think, acknowledge that. And also uh, what we know also from the research is that only 10% of our happiness comes from our circumstances. And while there's a genetic component as well, 40% of our happiness is something that we can intentionally create through behaviors. So me, you know, doing some of the the behaviors and the activities that I was doing prior uh, to COVID and then during COVID and also after COVID, I still can, again, create happiness regardless of the outside circumstances. And so number one would be to not move too quickly and not let it really kind of think about the lessons learned and sit a little bit and reflect a little bit on this collective trauma and kind of support one another in processing that collective trauma. And also just knowing that our outside circumstances don't fully determine our happiness. They're really kind of this small percentage. And I don't want it, that to be taken lightly that I'm taking away from anybody's experience of the pandemic and anybody's loss, because I also mm-hmm. um, experienced loss as well. Yeah. I, I, you know, maybe it's just that my brain functions in TikTok sounds now, but you reminded <laughs> me, you reminded me of a TikTok that I watched where it was somebody like, doing like, you know, a little skit where they were talking to themselves. And one person was like, man, I just can't wait until the pandemic is over. And the other person said, oh, you know, why? Well, because I want to go back to normal. And then the other person said, why the hell would you want to go back to that? And it made me think about like the ways in which sometimes our, our circumstance or, uh, you know, like you said, an act of collective trauma can help us at both the societal and individual level to grapple with the things about our life that we're not making us happy, but that we didn't even know were sources of discomfort and distress because of how normalized they were. And so this idea of like, no, let's not go back to normal. Let's create a new normal, I think is very comforting for a lot of people and has given some folks the freedom to reconceptualize what happiness can mean for them. Yeah. 
All yeah, right. I just, I'm sorry. I know no, no, I, go ahead. I want you to be, be able to keep moving, but I, I just really like what you said about, and now I'm not even going to be able to remember exactly what you said, <laughs> but I just really like what you said about this. It's this acknowledgement of spaces of discomfort. We are continually just moving forward with like, I believe this, I value this and having to do with happiness and success and relationships. And we never stop to say, why is it that I believe this and put ourselves in kind of a space of discomfort to kind of feel that full range of emotions and become aware of things that we believe for a really long time that might actually not be serving us mm. and not be allowing us to uh, create happiness in a in a kind of really great relationship and things like that. Yeah. All right. So I had I had one question and a bonus question. I think I'm going to smush them together into one. Um, Great. Sounds good. Your other your your channel of research, as I'm most familiar with it, is with student athletes. And I think when people talk about athletes and exercise, there's a very rigid definition of happiness. And the one that I think of is when people are doing exercise, I've heard it referred to as chasing endorphins, right? The, the idea that if you exercise, if you're active, your body will release endorphins, the endorphins will make you happy. For me, this creates a transactional view or even I dare I say a capitalistic view of what happiness is. And so my question is, how can we frame happiness in a way that isn't so hierarchical, that doesn't make it look like a goal or a task that we must attack or tackle? Yeah, so that's a good question. And just a real kind of brief comment um, I think it's interesting that you uh, had touched on and mentioned like athletes and kind of endorphin chasing, just kind of in the environment that we're in right now. And we're finally starting to allow athletes the space to have conversations about mental health mm -hmm. um, and about their own happiness. And it just goes to show you that um, one particular role that you're in, or if you do one aspect that we know through the research to make you happy, something like exercise um, and endorphins and things like that, that it doesn't kind of just give you again happiness, that it's not again this tangible thing that athletes just have or any one person has. Mm. And so going back to your question, about, you know, moving away from some of these myths about happiness, that happiness is something that's out there to be found. And once we find it, we're going it, to, it's going to be tangible. We're going to put it in our pocket and then we're just going to automatically ha be happy and we don't have to do any work. Um, even this idea of um, deferring happiness all the time, we're constantly saying, you know, once we uh, get a house, once we get the relationship that we want, once we uh, get the dog that we want, mm -hmm. once we uh, pay off our debt, once the pandemic's over, all of these, if this, then I will be happy. And it's 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 putting happiness, it's framing happiness outside of the present. It's it's putting it in some future tense. Or it's putting a putting it in the past tense, like, oh, I remember this time in my life. It was before the pandemic when I was happy. If I could just go back to that moment, oh, then man, I would be yeah. happy. It's funny because so, you're describing rumination, which is like one of the things that predicts dissatisfaction most strongly. Very yeah. ironic. So, so again, if we can move to framing happiness as something that we intentionally create through our interactions, 
through our behaviors that we intentionally create through action and that it's also created in language, then we can start to, again, define it for ourselves. We can start to, it gives us the space for action to create it in our own life. And I think that that is the really key kind of point and key reframe is that it's not just something that's kind of out there to be found, or it's not due to circumstance, um, or it's not something that we're just born with. And that's something that uh, Sanja Lubomirsky talks about in The How of Happiness, the book that we use for the class. So again, moving away from happiness being defined for us, something that's kind of that myth that it's out there to be found, the American dream, um, if we just work hard, we'll get it. Um, that really kind of shifts our mindset to like, we can intentionally create it. And I do think, um, just as I'm wrapping up here, that contentment and shifting that definition to kind of something more along the lines of contentment, where we're looking at it as uh, this kind of unconditional wholeness. I know from the Cordero article, he says it's right here, right now. Everything is perfect as it is, regardless of what you are experiencing on the outside. And so that enough strategy where it's we're looking inward versus looking for some sort of mm-hmm. more uh, stuff, acknowledgement, um, things, success, <laughs> yeah. happiness. I think that's a great note to end on. So that's where we'll end. Next time, we're going to hear from the godfather of friends with benefits relationships and completely switch topics. But Dr. Kamrat, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. If you'd like to be on the show or have questions for us, please send us an email to redrockrelationships at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just search Red Rock Relationships. Thank you again. And remember, it all begins with good communication. This has been a production from a podcast studio.